everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Ideology. I'm Mick Murray here with Drew Stedman. And last week we started a discussion on the nature of the church, the big church word or theological word is ecclesiology. And we looked at some of the secular phenomenons of our day here in the West that are deeply impacting us when it comes to how we participate in and how we view the church. We talked about hyper-individualism. We talked about consumerism and the functionalist view of the church, and then spent some time looking at the word ecclesia in the New Testament as the, the original word used to talk about the assembly of the people of God and the importance of that. And then began to unpack these metaphors. And Drew, you started off uh, talking about the church as the body of Christ. And we want to pick that back up today and look at these other three metaphors, the church as the temple of the spirit, the church as the household of God, and the church as God's chosen people, and then pivot into some points of application. So Drew, why don't you pick it back up and talk about the church as the temple of the spirit? This one I think is harder for us to connect with, but it's it's a very prominent metaphor throughout the New Testament. Paul uses it here, and then you also see, see with First uh, Peter, Peter really uses this imagery as well. And, and part of our challenge is we don't do temples very much anymore in the West. Um, I've spent a lot of time in South Asia where they have a ton of temples, and so I've, I've gotten to see them. And I, I think we need to understand what a temple represents before we can understand what it means for us to be the temple of, of the Spirit. And so at its core, a temple is the house of a god. It's the place where God or a God dwells on the earth. It's the place where heaven and earth join together. And you see in ancient architecture, typically the temple would be at the very core of the city. So it's the thing that holds the whole city together was this temple. And for sure, we see this, uh, we see this in the Old Testament and the people of Israel. The temple was what tied the whole nation together. It's what brought the people together. It was God's seat on the earth. It was the place where God's presence dwelled. It was the place where his grace resided. It was the, the place where there was atonement, the place that there was forgiveness, the place where the people would meet with God. Uh, it's an incredibly powerful metaphor. And, and so what do we see in the new covenant that by the Spirit, the temple still exists, but it's no longer a fixed point geographically located in one nation, but instead the temple is a living entity. When the people of God gather together, then God dwells amongst us. And if, you, we, if we jump to Peter's metaphor of the church, he breaks down going back to the individual versus communal. Who are we as individuals? We are living stones. You know, if you're ever tempted towards pride or arrogance, in the New Testament, you're just a stone. <laughs> uh, no, of course, you're valuable in the sight of God. But there, there's something, you know, by myself, I'm just a stone. But when I join together with the people of God, we form a house where God dwells by his spirit. And that then becomes the center. So earlier, we were talking about this idea of ecclesia, you know, the gathering of the people. And so the temple at the core of the new city of God is actually us. It's us gathering together in his presence. And that's where if you jump ahead to the end of Revelation, you see in the eternal city, there is no temple because God dwells amongst us as his people. And it's the ark of scripture. 
A lot of uh, scholars actually believe that in the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, all of creation is presented as a temple and temple imagery is used. And so when God created this world, he always intended his creation to be a temple. He intended it to be a place where we get to encounter his spirit together. And so what began where all creation was a temple in Genesis 1 and 2, the rupture of sin then limited God's presence on the earth. But the arc of the story is that it ends in Revelation 21 and 22, where once again, all of creation is a temple and we're gathered together in the presence of God. And so when we are the church, we experience a foretaste of that now. Not in fullness yet, that's why we look forward to Christ's return, but we do get to experience the reality of being the temple of God on the earth. And uh, whenever I think of this metaphor, I just think when we do gather together as church, when we gather together on a Sunday morning, do we realize what we're doing? Do we realize that we are forming the temple of God where his presence dwells? And that's whether it's our Sunday worship, whether that's our life groups, our house churches, you know, anytime we come together as the people of God, we form a temple where Christ dwells by his spirit. Another way to say that is if you wanted to be where God was in the Old Testament, you know, you had to be at the tabernacle or at the temple that where the manifest presence of God was, unless he showed up in these theophanies in some different spaces. When Jesus came on the scene, if you wanted to be where God was, you had to be where Jesus was. So if Jesus was in Capernaum, you had to go to Capernaum. If he was at Bethany, you had to be in Bethany. Now, if you want to be where God is, you have to be where the people of God are. And that's an amazing thought, just to reiterate what you were just saying, Drew. Do we realize when we gather together the power inherent of that gathering as the temple of the the temple of God built with living stones? Uh, one other metaphor: the household of God. You have all this family imagery throughout the scriptures. In fact, that's one of the main reasons God created the family was to demonstrate what He is like and His desired relationship with His people and what that's supposed to look like and how it's supposed to function. And, you know, one thing to note here, we are adopted into God's household, and I have the privilege of personally being adopted. And when Mike and Peggy Murray, my adoptive parents, when they brought me into their household at two weeks old, I inherited not just them as parents, but my sister Morgan. I inherited my aunts and uncles. I inherited lots of physical benefits not just these parents, but this whole kind of economy came with them, this whole tribe that is now my people. And it is dysfunctional, it is messy, but it is my people. And, you know, I was even thinking this week as we've had, you know, we've been snowed in, we were without power for a couple of days, even though we have incredible community here in Waco who with whom we were touching base and, you know, making sure everybody was was okay, but we found that the people that we were communicating with most in a time of intense trial were our families. Uh, even though our families, my wife's family and I'm in mine, you know, we have our your standard dysfunction of a family. Yet it's where our hearts return in the place of pressure and trial. And that's the intention of the metaphor of us being the family of God, the church. And I think this is a very important facet of the church to recapture in today's day and age, especially amidst, you know, individualism and consumerism, because we are the generation of options. If there is some kind of friction or pain or pressure, you know, we can, we've got a thousand other friends, we've got multiple other options, we can just leave one and, you know, adhere to to the next thing. Marriages are cheap in, in one sense, and uh, friendships are cheap in another sense. And, and so the church relationship, our relationship to the family of God can often 
be cheapened as well. That if we become offended by somebody, it's easy to move on to the next thing and often to retain bitterness in the process. And so I, we'll talk about this in a moment, but our admonition is to recapture this notion of the church as the family of God. And that's not to say there aren't times it's appropriate to move on and God moves people around. That's great. But, but in our hearts to value our brothers and sisters in Christ as true family in, in the biblical sense that we care for one another, we submit to one another, we love one another, we honor each other, and all the other one, or, one another's of Scripture as the family of God, an incredibly powerful metaphor. You know, and one thought here on the sacrament of baptism, that's one of the reasons that this is, along with communion, has been a staple of the body of Christ for the past two millennia. In fact, in all the major kind of Protestant movements throughout uh, the last four or 500 years. But even before that, when you talk about the radical church, that kind of goes back to the root of the New Testament expression of the church. Baptism and communion have always gone hand in hand. And baptism is this symbol of dying to self and being raised, born into uh, a new creation personally, but also a, into a family. And I remember experiencing this powerfully in North Africa one time. We were part of a secret baptism ceremony where two um, Muslim background believers were going to be baptized into the local fellowship there. It was an incredibly moving experience because by being baptized then publicly out on the beach after this ceremony, they marched out into the beach, baptized them in the Mediterranean. For them, it was the, the moment at which their families would disown them because they were publicly aligning with Christ. And the church was truly adopting them. They were not going to have the opportunity to work and earn an income, to marry, uh, at least outside of kind of the household of faith. And, and it was a, a deeply stirring and sobering experience to see for them how palpable this metaphor was uh, as a reality for them, that the, the people of God were becoming truly their household as their own families were going to reject them. And that's, this is what baptism symbolized to them, a transference from one kingdom to another, one family to another. This idea of the household of God and the familial language, it is such a stark contrast to our consumerism. I would encourage everyone, and this is something I learned from Jimmy, uh, our senior pastor here in Waco, over and over again, he just drilled it into my head. Whenever you get stuck wondering about church, think about family. Just over and over, think about family. This is the biblical metaphor. And you see such a stark contrast. We were in a group having this conversation, Mick and I were with several other people, and um, the, the, you know, we're just extrapolating this idea. And I started talking about, you know, this is somewhat humorous, but there are people who actually rate churches online. They give them like, you know, a one star, two star, three star, you know, all the way up to five star review. And of course, some people do that just as an encouragement. There's actually people who give they will give lesser reviews, you know? So this was only a three-star church, or this was a two-star church. And that makes a lot of sense if you're a consumer. You're trying to identify, where do I get the best service for me? But when you start thinking about that as a family, and you start thinking about how Jesus views his church, I just wonder, do you realize that you just left a two-star review for Christ's bride? I just, I mean, wow, I just can't imagine, fathom. I'm gonna stand before Jesus and someday have to give an account for why I left a two-star review for his bride publicly. I don't want to be in those shoes. I am sorry, you know, and if you've done that, I would highly encourage you to go delete that comment as fast as you possibly can. And I think Jesus understands that his bride is not always the easiest person to love, and he still loves her. You know, I think about this, or using other family language, I think about my own kids or my own family. As a father, 
One of the best ways that someone could show love to me is the way that they love my children. Joining me in loving my children does not mean thinking that my children are perfect. In fact, they can make a lot of mistakes and be very frustrating at times. And it's totally fine to be okay and honest about those frustrations. And I think any family, family members hurt each other and that, that's part of it. But love has to be bigger than that. Love, love is, is recognizing these people are, are deeply valuable. And so for me, I just always go back to this of when I love the church, I am loving the children of God. And there is no greater place of intimacy with the Father than joining him in loving his children, even if his children are hard to love at times. And so it's a rewiring our brain to no longer think as consumers, but to love and honor the family of God. And there's a million complex situations that that come up of you know, at what point do people need to leave a church? Uh, obviously, the, these notions can and have been misused at times in, in dysfunctional situations, just like there's dysfunctional families. And so at what point do you have to set up boundaries or disassociate or, you know? Um, so I, I acknowledge the pastoral implications of this. And as anybody in ministry can attest, we've had to work with people um, on these things, and it's complicated. And, you know, each, each situation I've had to help people with is, is unique at one level. But if we don't see the church right, we're, there's no way we're going to know how to respond to it. So I start by understanding church as family. And just like I view a literal family, I view family as sacred. So I approach it as I would approach a sacred thing with the fear of God, with an understanding of what we're talking about. And there are times in pastoral ministry that I have to encourage people to set boundaries with their physical family. And I hate it. It's horrible. But sometimes you have to, and there's no way around it. And any wise pastor, I hope, has the fear of God when they give that pastoral counsel. And so in the same way, there's times you have to do the same thing with church family. So it doesn't, it doesn't take away from the reality of the dysfunction of sin, but it's rewiring our starting point to start by seeing church as sacred, not by seeing church as a consumer product. So we've covered three metaphors. We've, we've hit body of Christ, temple of the spirit, household of God. The last one is God's chosen people. And this one is really important. We may not register with it quite as, as naturally as uh, maybe the other ones, but the church is the people through whom Jesus is continuing his ministry on earth. I, that is such a huge deal. Uh, frankly, if I were God, I would advise him against this strategy, you know, of, of we as humanity have proved ourselves unreliable. That's maybe another way of reading the scripture. You, a major takeaway is that people are not great emissaries. But for whatever reason, God chose us. And it's interesting uh, there's a lot of language in the Bible that throws people off, talking about being chosen, called, elected, predestined. And I'm going to skip the Calvinism debate where you take that language on an individual level, are individual people chosen or called? And that's obviously an ongoing debate in the church. That's not today's episode. But I think in the New Testament, that language is predominantly intended to start communally. We, as the people of God, have been chosen. We have been elected. We have been predestined. From the dawn of time, we are the people through whom God is working his eternal plan. And again, if you go back to the book of Ephesians, it's the mystery of God revealed through all the ages. And, you know, it's like this giant climatic moment, and it's the church. And we are the ones where God is making his manifest wisdom known to the rulers and the powers and the principalities on the earth. It's us, the church. And I, I take that so seriously that, of course, this is not because we as humans have power, but it's because we as humans are filled in our weakness by the Holy Spirit together to express God to this world. And, and I go back uh, consistently to the story in the Gospels of Jesus 
sending the 12 and the 72. I think that was a foretaste of what it means to be the church, that we don't necessarily have money belts, we don't necessarily have all these fancy things, but we're sent by God into the world in community, and he sent them in, in groups. We're sent by God into the world in community to be heralds of the kingdom of heaven that is to come. We, we live the church. We, are, we live out the kingdom of God in the world, and we give witness. We're heralds. And you, know, you think of those words, maybe, maybe, I don't know what associations come to mind, but for people living in a kingdom, these are the representatives of a kingdom that would go around announcing the decrees of the king, and that's what it's mean, meant to be the church. There's a missiologist who uses the big term that the church is God's eschatological beachhead. That's complicated even to say, and you have to sit with it for a long time to understand what the heck he's talking about. But I I think if you really break that illustration down, what he's saying is the church is the place where the age of the kingdom breaks into this world. And it's not in fullness yet, but it's still very real that we are part of the kingdom of God, God's chosen people living in this world. And it's in us that God is revealing himself to all of creation. And that is such a high calling that we have inherited. Great. So we want to conclude these two weeks talking about ecclesiology, what is the church, with a couple of points of application after talking about these different metaphors and what it means to be the ecclesia, this gathering of the the people of God. Once again, we want to reiterate that we could talk, there could be a whole podcast on the structure of church. And we are in unprecedented times with, certainly with COVID and with all the different types of platforms and models of church and the, this, we could go on ad nauseum talking about the structures. And that's actually, there's a tremendous need for that. And there's a place for that. And Drew and I are very passionate about that. But if we aren't settled and centered on what the, the identity of the church is, who Jesus calls his church, how the New Testament writers refer to the church, then we're going to be unmoored. We're going to be kind of um, shooting in the dark, and we might end up in a place that we are unintended to be as the church. And so we would charge all of us to meditate on the, the scriptural references to what the church is. Try to separate yourself from the common cultural notions if they aren't rooted in biblical truth. And let's become a biblically centered people when it comes to the teachings on the church. Yeah, and as both of us, We work a lot with pastors, and a lot of the people I know that listen to this podcast are innovating in different ways of what it means to plant churches, what it means to revitalize churches, reach communities. And as time has gone on, I have probably studied more church planting, types of church planting methodology. You know, I mean, so many. We could go through a long list of sitting through seminars and trainings on innovative ways to reach people, reach different types of people, how to think missiologically about our culture. And it's all great stuff and, and a lot of great material. And, and I could sit down and have a great conversation, um, hopefully evaluating the pros and cons of different models of church. But I just want to stress what, what you just said, Mick, and um, really charge all of us that if we try to innovate and adapt the church to our culture without understanding what the church is, there is no way we're going to build the right thing. And, you know, we could use point to so many different illustrations, but if we are trying to build something that is entirely based on Western individualism, I don't think it's going to be the church. Or absolutely, if we are catering to consumerism, then man, we, we've got to be so careful. You know, so when we innovate, and it's, you know, there's a line here, we want to be hospitable as the church. And so it's not to say that the church should be a place that is inhospitable to guests, 
But at the core is, do we view church as a service we are providing to people? Or is the church the family and the people of God that we are inviting people into, which involves a road to the cross, which is like the opposite of consumerism? And so I just want to charge all of us that we need to, we need to retrain our brains to think biblically about the church and critically evaluate the structures. And I could see whether it's you know micro or macro or mega churches, or whether it's various forms of church or different types of liturgy, you know, whether it's a very Pentecostal liturgy or some of the more modern evangelicals or historic. I mean, there's so many options out there, and I'm less excited about debating the options as I am instead challenging us to think biblically about who we are. And I I think that's going to be the key to this season is get really clear on who we are. And if we're really clear on who we are, then I'm trusting the Spirit of God will lead us to what we do and how we express that in our age. But if we are not clear on who we are, at some point, we just become a mirror to the culture rather than a prophetic witness to the culture. That's great. So if our first kind of point of application is to think biblically about the church, to really focus on the identity of the church, the second one flows from that, and that is addressing, again, the difficulties that arise from being part of the church. I have yet to meet somebody that hasn't had some sort of challenge when it comes to their involvement with the church, whether it was a difficult relationship or feeling like a round peg in a square hole in terms of how they think about the church and so on and so forth. And I think our plea after being in ministry for 15 plus years, 20 plus years, is to, again, think about the church as the, as the, the, the household of God. Everybody is going to experience pain at some point. And, and of course, there are really bad types of pain and types of relationships that require boundaries and require moving on. And, and, and we have a lot of compassion for those who have experienced really difficult things at the hands of believers connected to a church. At the same time, if we're just talking about, you know, the types of offenses that arise through in the course of human relationship, then our plea would be to press into those relationships, to attempt to resolve, to attempt, you know, as far as it belongs to you to be at peace with all men before jumping ship and shifting gears into that consumeristic mentality. And of course, this this is highly nuanced and every circumstance is different and and it requires walking through this with wisdom, with some, you know, trusted counselors, advisors, friends who can help you navigate these complexities. But as a general statement, we would really ask that, um, you know, you as a follower of Jesus would consider your participation in the household of God as something sacred that is not to be tossed aside lightly in the face of inevitable challenges, inevitable offenses, but to press into those to the glory of God. On that note, our individualism, I see this across our, our culture, it tells us that when we experience pain in human relationships, that we find safety by withdrawing deeper into self. And you see people doing this everywhere. In churches, you see people doing this in their actual families. They start putting up walls left and right and hiding, withdrawing. And you know what's complicated about this is there are extreme situations, both with church or family or other forms of human relationship, where that is necessary. But I'm noticing a lot of people these days applying what you do in the most extreme situation, and they're projecting it onto normal situations. And every human relationship, just to reiterate, will have pain. Another way of saying that is if you have not experienced some kind of relational pain in your family, I'm not sure you're doing family right. 
you know, the, the nature of intimacy and love and connectedness is that you end up hurting each other at times. And what family has to learn to do, whether that's a marital relationship or a parent-child relationship, is you work through it. And so if we think about it through this modern individualistic lens, when we get to that point of pain, what we do is we withdraw, we, we retreat into isolation. And I would encourage everybody, go online and start looking up loneliness statistics for the United States and Western Europe. It is wild the rate at which loneliness has increased in our culture. And there's a pretty well-known mental, uh, mental health crisis going on right now in the Western world. And it's this wild disparity. This is pre-COVID where the life expectancy has started to decline in some of the most developed industrialized nations uh, simultaneously to where we have reached some of the highest levels of peace, prosperity, and physical health. And the reason the life expectancy is declining is all self-inflicted, whether it's addiction, self-harm, things like that. It's actually starting to cut life expectancy short. And, you know, there's probably a variety of reasons for this, but when you look at that trajectory alongside of loneliness— the two, are go, they go together. And our loneliness is literally killing us. And this notion that our safety is found in our individualism is actually leading to widespread harm in our culture and rather than what I believe is a much healthier way to do it is that at the points of pain, we have to learn how to work stuff through. And because we've been so discipled by individualism, uh, that actually doesn't feel normal or natural to a lot of us. It's something, it's a learned skill of relearning how to do family and human relationships, but I believe it's crucial. And having the privilege of traveling to a lot of other cultures, they really understand this. And I appreciate the witness of um, so many of, of my friends around the world who come from, I think specifically of the Indian church or a few other places, just watching how they do family, even how they do physical family, it's not steeped in the same type of individualism that we have. And uh, of course there's times where it's dysfunctional and they would all be the first to tell you that, but it's more dysfunctional to be alone. And I, I think that's the point. It's more dysfunctional to retreat and be isolated and alone than it is to work through the dysfunction that we're inevitably going to have in a human relationship. Remember that there's always going to be pain because you bring that too. Uh, and I have heard people, I cannot tell you how many stories I've had, I've heard, and I know, Mick, you can say the same, of talking to people about their church pain. You know, people who come to a new church, they tell me the story that they came out of and people, and I, and of course, I've you know been a part of different churches as well, been a part of leadership in different churches, work with pastors across the country. Here's so many you know people just expressing their stories. And I think in the same way, I hear so many people doing the same thing as they talk about what goes on in their own families. And it does not negate the reality of pain, nor um, does it negate the need for empathy of listening and having a place to share. But where do we go with it? And that's the key point. Let me also do a brief tangent as we're talking about the reality of pain in human relationships. The year 2020, and so far 2021 is not getting any easier, has been the most difficult year any pastor I've talked to, or almost any pastor I've talked to, that any of them can ever remember for pastors. And this is a nationwide thing, both in our network as well as other church networks that I relate to. You know, just across the board, it's been a really difficult year. And I think a lot of that is uh, just the reality that we're all, everybody <laughs> really around the world, and for sure in our nation, we're living under a lot of stress with COVID and, and all that that's entailed and the disruption to our lives. And that's being manifested. And I think we all probably have noticed that we might be just a little more prone to not being at our best self and you know saying things we regret or doing things that, that could cause pain for somebody else. 
And where you really see that is in any group of people. And so you might have noticed that in your own family, and that's certainly happening in churches all across this country. And so here's my encourage to all of us is what our nation needs right now is peacemakers and people that press in in love and relationships, that extend grace, that extend forgiveness, that are proactive. And I, I think that's really critical. And so I want to speak up on behalf of pastors. Um, I have so many pastor friends that um, have really taken the brunt of just trying to help people and navigate it, but in the midst of a, a very difficult culture. But that, that's my just my personal plea to all of our listeners of please be part of in the midst of a lot of stressors in our society, and as a result, a lot of stressors that are inside of our churches, please be a part of those who are reconcilers and extending grace and peace and love as the people of God. All right, so we've got to be clear on our identity. We have to reframe our way of thinking about the reality of pain that comes in human relationship. And third point of application is recognizing that our most powerful witness to the world is us together as the church. There is a missiologist who, a guy named Leslie Newbegin, who first, uh, really, the first half or more of his life was spent um, as a missionary in India in the middle of the last century. And then he came back to the United Kingdom and he realized how much social change had gone on, where um, I would say Western Europe is several decades ahead of the United States in this trend towards secularism. And so the country that he returned to was very different than the country that he had left from. And what he realized is that he needed to think as a missionary going back into England. And so he wrote quite a few different books and became a very well-known missiologist as a result of that, one of those early people who started to apply missiology to the West and realizing that we have to rethink our relationship to our own culture. It's not just about us going somewhere else as missionaries, but us living as missionaries wherever we are. And a lot of that, he was one of those early adopters with that. And he had this phrase uh, in one of his books that, that I found to be very powerful. And it, his phrase is this. I'll break down what it means in a second. But the phrase is that the church is the hermeneutic of the gospel. And hermeneutics is a fancy word for describing interpretation. So we apply hermeneutics when we read scripture. It's how we interpret the writings of scripture or something else. And so what he's saying by this phrase is that the way the world can interpret the gospel is by what they see lived out in the church. That our words alone only have so much power, but the way that we live is what ultimately the world sees and how they're going to understand the power of our gospel message. And that is so significant. Now, I would add to that as a spirit-filled believer that it's the power of the spirit and the church living in the power of the spirit that that is the hermeneutic of the gospel. So maybe Drew's own unique take to it. But I think this is really significant for us and why this is such a big deal, that we have to understand our identity, why we have to work through the inevitable reality of pain in human relationship, uh, because ultimately we need the church to be a witness to the gospel. And it's as we together as God's people live in his kingdom and we model that, that's what then gives us the foundation to share the gospel and to give witness to the world around us. We have to be the people of God. We have to live out the gospel and then we have power to proclaim the gospel. And those two have to go together. And so Christ is the head. We're filled with the life of the spirit. We're elected and called by the father for his purposes. And we become an outpost of God's kingdom on earth. And we live by kingdom power. And what that means is going back to where we started in last week's episode is that we're the ecclesia, we're the, we're the gathering 
of those who live by the kingdom. And that means our ethics are different. That what we understand to be right and wrong is not what our world understands, but it's what we understand in Scripture. Our culture is different. The way we relate to each other should look different. If people, another, another way of saying that is if people don't walk into our churches and think, this is weird, this is different, there's something different about you guys. If they walk in and what they see is the culture of the world, we are missing it. And I think now more than ever, I'm praying for distinction for the church. I hope we're a little weird in our culture. I think our, our culture needs a little weird. I don't think the world needs more of itself. I think it needs something different. And our hope is different. We don't put hope in the same things that the world puts hope in. And so this is, this is who we are as God's people is we're fundamentally different and we're giving witness to a kingdom and ultimately to a king that is fundamentally different. And so I don't have all the answers. I don't know how we navigate uh, a post-COVID world. I don't know how we navigate the divisions that are popping up in our society. Um, right now, we're just trying to survive the Texas snowstorm and the fallout. You know, there's, there's so many things going on in our world. But what I believe with all my heart is that if we're clear on who we are and our identity as the church, then that's going to be the place where we, we find our answers and we're led by the Spirit on what does it mean for us to step into this new world, not reacting to the things going on around us, but instead proactively as the people called by God. Great. So that wraps up two weeks on ecclesiology, talking about the the essence of the church. Again, starting with this is the water that we're swimming in with individualism and consumerism and functionalism, and then looking at the metaphors and the nature, the essence of the church as a gathering of the people of God, and then ending with these three points of application. Thank you for tuning in as always, and we will catch you next week on Ideology. Ideology.